Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Hey. I'm laughing because a mutual friend of ours said that he didn't realize what my last name was, and he thought it was Desi Jed, and I was saying Desi Jed again. Oh. <laughs> so now <laughs> when I said that, I was like, oh, that could, I can see how he thought that. <laughs> I was like, but what a loser I would be if I just always said that every, every week. Yeah. <laughs> it's Desi Jed again. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So. Yeah. And shout out to our friend if you're listening. You know who you are. You know who you are. You know who you are. I mean, I don't know who you are because we've never met. I don't even. I said to him, I'm like, I don't even think I really know his last name. Like, I know his first name because you've told me, obviously. It's not his, like, handle. Right. Yeah. Well, I've hung out with him twice. Yeah. In New York. It's just funny because you do have these friendships and sometimes you're like, wait, what's their name? (laughs) I just know their handle. Right, right, right. Anyway. Totally. Okay. So let's start out the show by thanking our lovely patrons. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Jenna, Christopher, Carrie, Sarah, Kat and Erica, Tina, Silver, Dee, Lisa, Angela, Sarah, Jillian, Shannon, and Megan. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. Okay. So this is our last installment of our uh, Halloween horror movie versus reality um, episodes that we're doing for Halloween month. And today we're going to be discussing the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, a series of unsolved murders that were committed in Texarkana during the spring of 1946 by an unidentified serial killer known as the Phantom Killer or the Phantom Slayer. His reign of terror lasted a very short period. Um, His attacks always occurred on weekends between February 22nd of 1946 and May 3rd of 1946. This crime is rumored to have inspired um, a very famous Lover's Lane urban legend, and that is the one with the hook-handed <gasps> killer. Do you Ooh, know that? Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic where they kind of hear on the radio that there had been a hook-handed killer on the loose, right, at Lover's right. Lane, and then they get out of the car, and the hook is on their window, and they had just left Lover's Lane. It's something like that, right? Yeah. So it was like, ooh, we, we were almost victims of the hook-handed killer. Now, there is no hook-hand in this uh, crime. But uh, yeah. So it for sure inspired the 1976 horror film called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Did you see that? No. And I totally forgot you were doing this episode this week, and I should have watched it this week, and I'm sorry. Oh, okay. That's okay. Uh, it's pretty classic old 70s horror movie. Like, I, I know of the movie. And it had, like, a, a sequel-y kind of movie remake type deal in the 2000s at some point. Um, anyway, so we'll talk more about that at the end of this episode. So let's get started. Okay. So on Friday night, February 22nd, 1946, a 25-year-old man named Jimmy Hollis and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, who was 19, went out with another couple to a movie and then a diner afterwards. Jimmy drove the other couple home, and since it was still early, he and Mary went to a secluded area that was known as a lover's lane. Um, So... Unfortunately, when the couple get to this area, they were not alone. Around 11.55 p.m., and this is according to Mary, we had been there about 10 minutes when a man walked up. He wore a white mask over his head with cutout places for the eyes and mouth. He (gasps) pointed a flashlight and pistol at us. He came up on the driver's side of the car and told Jimmy something like this, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so just do what I say. We both got out of the car on Jimmy's side and stood by the man. The man then told Jimmy, take off your fucking britches. 
Mary begged Jimmy to do as the man said, and Jimmy took off his pants. After Jimmy had taken off his trousers, the man hit Jimmy twice on the head. The noise was so loud, I thought Jimmy had been shot, but I later learned that the sound was his skull cracking. Oh my God. I picked up Jimmy's pants and took his billfold out of his pocket, and I said, look, he doesn't have any money, but the man told me I was lying and said that I had a purse, but I told him that I didn't. Then he hit me, I thought with a piece of iron pipe and knocked me to the ground, but I managed to get up. Now, Mary said that the man told her to run and even yelled at her while she was running to change directions, like mid-running, like I don't really know why. That was really terrifying to me because that's like one of my fears where like someone who's attacking you tells you to run. Oh God. And you're like, don't know what they're going to do to you when you're running. Like, cause you know, it's like probably something bad, right? Like Like, they're not just letting you escape. Like, and you have to like zigzag. Like I always like, I always feel like I'll have to zigzag really fast so they can't shoot me. Like it's like getting me like scared right now thinking of that. Well, it's like a hunting thing. Yeah. Like it must be the most terrifying feeling in the world. Because you want to escape, right? but at the same time, are you more vulnerable running in like an open field or something? You don't want to play their game. Yeah. It's like such a weird fucked up yeah. thing to do to somebody. And they know that. That's yeah. why they do oh, it. Oh, absolutely. So uh, she eventually does reach the main road where she sees a parked car. And she kind of like in her testimony or in her um, statement, she kind of instantly is like, is this his car? Like (gasps) she's kind of happy to see the car, but then she instantly kind of realizes like, wait, that might be his car. Like, am I running to his car? And she was right. Once she reaches the car, the the attacker is approaching her again. Uh, he comes up to her and he asks her, why are you running? <gasps> like, which is so fucked up and creepy. Like, I get the chills. Um, he pistol whips her, knocks her to the ground, and then he sexually assaults her with the barrel of a gun. She is able to escape again because basically a car kind of pulls by and he's spooked by the lights mm-hmm. and runs back into the forest. So she takes that opportunity to run. She runs about a half a mile to like, the next home that's like down this in this secluded area. Meanwhile, Jimmy, um, he's able to flag down a passing car. So while he's left alone, he kind of stumbles to the um, main road as well and flags a passing car down. Now he's badly beaten at this point. As I mentioned, he had a skull fracture and he's bleeding profusely because you know how head wounds just fucking bleed uh, crazy. So the driver almost understandably like is like I'm not letting you in the car but he's like I'll go call the police um at this point um Mary had reached a home that had a cop like had a phone so she had already called the police so while he's waiting for the police to be called the police actually arrive um so obviously when the cops arrive the assailant is long gone so right. who knows if he saw them coming and left or what what the hell happened Mary is hospitalized over overnight for a minor head wound, and Jimmy is hospitalized for several days to recover from his obviously more serious uh, skull fracture, but both of them do survive the attack. Now, I did read some reports that said he was in a coma for a few days, but I'm, I'm not sure which one is accurate, because uh, it was like 50-50. I hate when that happens. Yeah. You just don't know. Get it right. Um, so... Then they're both interviewed about what had happened that night. Both of them give conflicting reports to law enforcement as to what the attacker looked like. Mary claims that the man was wearing a white bag over his head with cutouts for the eyes and mouth, like I mentioned earlier, um, but that she could see under the mask that he was African-American. Now, Jimmy has a completely different 
opinion. He says the man was white, around 30 years old, but said that he couldn't really distinguish things because he's blinded by a flashlight that was sort of pointed at both of them Mm -hmm. during this attack. Both of them agree that he is about six feet tall. The investigation continues, obviously. Um, They pretty much only have this eyewitness testimony from the two victims um, because there was no evidence. Like, there's no guns, there's no, like, weapons left behind, there's no footprints, there's no nothing. The Saturday paper has a headline the next day, Mass Man Beats Texarkanian and Girl, and that obviously sets people into a panic. Now, this area is, like, a very post-war kind of suburb area, Texarkana. It's actually like in a weird weird location. It's right in the corner of four states, uh, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas. But this town is actually 50-50 on the border of Texar- Texas and Arkansas. Is that why they call it Texarkana? Yeah, that's the name. So it's kind of like um, Tahoe, where it's like, where's that like that re- that that like uh, hotel that's half on Nevada, half on California. Have you been to that in Lake Tahoe? It's called like the Calneva Lodge, I think. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's called the Calneva Lodge, I think. And it was like old school back in the day, Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Like the Rat Pack used to go there. Right. And now Tahoe is not as cool <laughs> as that. But it's like, it's right, it's claimed to fame is that it's on the border. So half of it is in one state. Yeah. And you can gamble in the Nevada side, but not the, the California That's side. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. So that is something that is sort of interesting because this case is on this town that's in two different states. The only person that they kind of have as a suspect is Mary's ex, but he had an alibi. So they don't really know, like there's no enemies. They weren't really robbed uh, at all. I think that the guy had $20 in his pocket and that wasn't even taken. So they don't really know what the um, motive for these crimes are. It just seems like literally like someone terrorizing a couple. So by the end of March, detectives are no closer to solving the crime or even knowing why or what happened really clearly just because the witnesses were obviously so traumatized. Their testimony is kind of like all over the place, like I mentioned before. On March 23rd, 1946, a man named Richard Griffin, age 29, and his girlfriend of just six weeks, Pollyanne Moore, age 17. Yes. Oh. Disgusting. (laughs) He's 29? He's 29 and she's 17. What's his name? Richard Richard Griffin. Richard. Mm -hmm. Richard, come on. So whatever. They go out on a double date, and they had planned on a dinner and then a movie, uh, that kind of deal. After the movie, they go to a cafe, and they kind of just hang out with their friends until about 2 a.m., and then they call it a night. Uh, He takes his girlfriend home, but obviously they take a detour to Lover's Lane. The next morning, March 24th, a passing motorist sees Richard's Oldsmobile and is suspicious enough to call the police to come check it out. The motorist at first thought that both people in the car were sleeping in the front seat. But police quickly discover something more grisly has occurred. Richard is found between the front seats on his knees in like a little um, dip between the two, like the passenger seat and the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. There's like a little uh, hollowed out area. He's in there on his knees. His head is resting on his crossed hands and his pockets are turned inside out. His pants are down around his ankles. Polly is in the back seat, face down. Um, She's been shot twice in the back of the head. Richard has also been shot twice in the back of the head. Um, They sort of figure out that he was shot in the car and think that Polly was shot outside of the car because there's a blood-soaked patch of ground near the car. Mm -hmm. And they think that she was then dragged into the car and placed sort of posed in this backseat area. 
She's completely dressed, by the way. And there is congealed blood all along the running board along the side of the car. Now, during the initial investigations, crowds at this point have gathered around this area where the bodies are found, which, duh, is not great for maintaining the integrity of a crime scene. I mean, these old cases just always seem to have this same story. Like, yeah, there's just no... I mean, maybe it's just an antiquated, like we're coming at from a modern perspective right. where you would have evidence tested. And I think they just didn't have the testing. So it didn't really matter as much, maybe. I don't know. Um. Anyways, the little, like, it's not like extra police people around there. It's like townspeople hanging out there. And all of these rumors start popping up that Polly had been sexually assaulted. But um, the police deny that this happened. It did not happen. She was not sexually assaulted. Uh Police then launch a citywide investigation along with Texas and Arkansas city police. Um, And now they're definitely like, wait, is this connected to the first attack? Like, what's going on here? Um, By March 27th, um, police had interviewed 50 to 60 witnesses, including um, people who had been employees and patrons of a place called Club Dallas, which was a local bar near the crime scene. By March 30th, police had posted a reward in order to get more tips and information, hoping that that would lead to an arrest and conviction of the person who did this to these people. Um, but nothing happens. They have a hundred false leads that they follow up on. And once again, they're just like left with no knowledge of what happened. Mary Jean was actually um, the first victim of the uh, initial attack. She's actually the one who went to the police saying that she thought that the attacks were related. And they oh. kind of dismissed her initially um, for whatever reason. Look, I have no idea. lady. Yeah. Um, but once again, they're at a dead end. Okay. On the evening of Saturday, April 13th, 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker is playing saxophone at her weekly gig with a big band at the VFW. Um, that's so sweet. That's really cute. So she kind of got this band because people were out at war, like, like the regular musicians in this big band, probably all guys. Yeah. And when they were gone, she kind of got this little gig playing with this big band at this dance every Saturday night. That's so cute. It's really cute. So this gig ends at about 1am and her like longtime friend, Paul Martin arrives to pick her up. Now, according to everyone who knew Betty Jo, like she's very responsible and like especially with her saxophone, which are pretty expensive. So what she would typically do after um, a gig is drop her saxophone at home and then go back out with her friends. They would all go to like a diner or whatever. Um, When I was reading about this case, they are always going to this late night diner, which I used to do when I was in high school. (laughs) Did you ever do that? I mean, yeah, like after concerts and stuff. Yeah, like go eat really late. And I used to always get like these French fries with melted cheese and gravy. Oh my God. It's like such a New York uh, thing. And I never see it anywhere else. Isn't that kind of like poutine? It's kind of like poutine, but it's not the same cheese. It's not curds. It's not curds. It's like melted mozzarella or something. Sounds great. But it has that gravy. (laughs) It's so good. We would always go to Denny's in Corte Madera. Shout out to a friend of the show and uh, my, one of my oldest friends, Chris Tognati. Him and I like always talk about how shitty it is that they closed the Denny's in Marin County. I think diners are so big in New York. There's just a million of these huge diners with like the menus that are like a hundred page. It's not the same. I mean, it's not the same as New York. Maybe, There's literally but- a million these Greek diners that have these menus that are like two feet tall with like a hundred dishes. I think we've talked about it where yeah. they have like lobster tail. <laughs> <laughs> like they have like everything on this right. menu. Uh, yeah. So 
I mean, the thing also, there are 24 hours. I think that's what I miss in LA. There's like no place that are open 24 Cafe hours. There's like right? three places. Yeah. At some point, the mom, Betty Jo's mom is like, where's, where's Betty with the saxophone? Like, that's very suspicious to her that Betty has not come home with the saxophone. So she kind of panics. And of course, the dad is like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. She's out with her friends. But at some point... Uh, her mom is like, no, something's wrong. She manages to reach one of Betty Joe's friends and finds out that Betty Joe is not with him. And that's when panic becomes absolute dread that something has happened. So at 6 a.m. the next morning, a married couple sees Paul Martin's body lying on a road by a lover's lane area uh, in Texarkana. Blood is found uh, down further on either side of the road by a fence, and he has been shot four times, once right in his face, once through his fourth like rib from behind a third time in his right hand, which sounds like a defensive wound to me. And finally one through the back of the neck. Now they're able to ID him uh, from his driver's license. Police had no reason to believe at that time that he was with someone else. But when word spreads about Paul's killing, friends start coming forward, telling police that they last saw Betty Jo with Paul and she's missing. So at that point, a large search party is organized and around 1130 AM, about two miles away, Betty Jo's body is found lying on its back, fully clothed with her right hand in the pocket of her um, overcoat. Oh my God. So she had been shot twice, once through the chest and once also in the face, which is like such a fucked up fucking thing to do. Like how, I'm sorry. Uh, The weapon is the same weapon that was used in the first double murder, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. So now they're like, oh yeah, something's going on here. <laughs> and the police are so slow. Cause to me, it's like, you did, did you need more than the first and the second? Like to know that something officially is happening here. His car is found about three miles away uh, from Betty's body and one and a half miles away from his. So this is definitely like a little different. Like this guy probably took the car at some point right. and something a little different was going on. Um, it, it still had the keys in it. So people don't, the authorities didn't know like who was killed first or what the sort of scenario of the night, like how things happened, but they could tell that both of the victims had put up a really big struggle, probably like yeah. the defensive wounds and stuff like that. I mean, they obviously interview all the people's friends and they're like, there's nothing, these people don't have enemies. I mean, they're 15 and 16 years old. Um, They are unable to locate Betty's saxophone. Um, The saxophone is eventually discovered six months later, still in its like case. And it was under um, a tree where her body was found. So Mm. it was sort of on the scene, but they just didn't discover it till months later. At this point, the reward is increases to $1,700, which is a lot more money back then, obviously. Um, And they're just trying, they're desperate for tips at this point and they can't fucking get any. Um, People obviously, the more, like the less information people get, the more rumors they start, you know, spreading around town, like what's going on. One person starts reporting like a local minister, that a local minister has turned his son in as a suspect. All of this stuff is lies though. Um, on April 18th, Captain Gonzalez, who is sort of in charge of the case, uh, he has to make a press conference telling people that no one has been caught because people are convinced that someone has been caught and the police aren't telling them. But he's like, no, why would we do that? Like, <laughs> this is insane. Yeah. Like, listen to us. Like, we'll let you know. Like, don't listen to all the rumors. But the town is just fucking freaking out. 
so much so like they're also like making a lot of false reports, like not intentionally, but they're so paranoid. Everything they see, they're like reporting, mm-hmm. which is a hindrance to the police department because then they start chasing all these stupid leads. Right. Um, so it's just becoming a huge fucking mess. Now, the Monday morning after these two murders, the Texarkana Gazette runs with a headline and lead story, teenage couple shot to death. Betty Jo Booker, Paul Martin killed in double slaying, tension grips city as investigation launched to solve the second twin murders. So Texarkana is literally freaking the fuck out right now. Following these headlines by the newspaper, everyone's even more terrified. Terrified. Other daily newspapers are starting to uh, hit the hit the newsstands with with headlines like "Phantom Killer Eludes Officers" as investigations of sailing uh, slayings are pressed. Um, and that name definitely sticks, the Phantom Killer, although he's sometimes called the Phantom Slayer. It's like all headlines, like Phantom Slayer still at large. Like police don't know, like he's out there waiting to kill, right? Beauty should be good for you. And that's why we're excited to tell you about Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding a light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. This is like a community that definitely was like, I think I mentioned in my last episode, like you're not locking the doors. People are locking the fucking doors now. Like everyone's locking their doors. Guns and ammunition are literally selling out at every local store. So people are arming themselves. People are even buying like axes. Like people are buying every weapon they can. It sounds like a Twilight Zone episode almost where like the town, what's that episode where the town all freaks out? Um, Texas Rangers kind of descend on the town and they start plotting 
how they're going to like capture the killer. People are even doing things like parking on Lover's Lane to try to lure the killer out themselves there's and like some kill big, them. There's some big burly guy in like a flannel. He's like, I'll tell you what. Yeah. If I see that guy around these parts, yeah. I'm going <laughs> to shoot him. No, it's like, it's like vigilante justice. Like they're all like want to catch this killer. Right. So they're like, it's like, it's becoming this huge like hindrance to the investigation and just a fucking mess because someone could get hurt. Like pe- police are literally worried that someone might be killed accidentally because someone's scared or whatever. Well, there's probably a lot of racist townspeople. Oh, also. yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, people are also very suspicious of their neighbors. I've already mentioned they would be like calling things in. Like, I right. saw someone this and that. Like, it's just like whatever. Uh, like, it's literally like a teen teens drinking, they'll call the cops. Like, right. this kind of thing. So, I mean, it's amazing that no one was accidentally killed uh, during this period. Um the press is also being inundated with people doing hoaxes, like calling them and pretending to be the um, killer of the two teens. Um, they're saying, "Oh, I'm the phantom killer." With the press, yeah, they're calling. They're calling the newspapers and like, "I'm the phantom killer." Like, and the press are like, "Oh, wait, is this the phantom killer?" Like. Or is it someone lying? Oh, somebody was calling the press. Yes, someone's calling them and pretending to be the killer as well. So it's kind of like has a little bit of a Zodiac vibe to me too, with like killing the couples in these cars and like also always contacting the press. Um, So at some point, someone kind of uh, figures out that from the first killing, it was three weeks to the next killing. So there, everyone at this point is now like, it's going to happen again in three weeks. So now everyone's like literally fucking freaking out for May 4th to arrive because that's when the <gasps> next killing should take place. Because someone figured out it's like every three weeks. Right. Um, which does not make anything better because everyone's even more tense, like <laughs> waiting for this date to come. Yeah. It's insane. I think there's even like a little bit of a curfew. Like people aren't allowed out at night because that's how scared people were that someone would get care killed just like walking around late mm-hmm. at night. So um, anyway, so we're all waiting for May 4th. On the evening of Friday, May 3rd, a 37-year-old man named Virgil Stakes and his wife, Catherine, are enjoying a quiet night at their farmhouse. Virgil is listening to his favorite radio program, and his wife, Catherine, is like up in her room doing whatever, uh, relaxing. Um, at some point, Catherine hears two loud bangs, and she goes to the living room to see what has happened. To her horror, she sees her husband, Virgil, slumped over in his chair. He has been shot twice in the back of the head. She runs to the phone when two more shots ring out. They've come through the front window. One bullet goes through her cheek and exits out her left ear. The second breaks her jaw and shatters all of her teeth. She collapses on the floor and starts trying to crawl to the bedroom where they have a gun like under the bed. By that point, she sees a man come through the kitchen window that had been broken by oh, the gunshot. Oh my God. She gets up. I'm like literally getting goosebumps right now. She gets up and runs at the front, out the front door at that point. Now, she's been shot twice in the face. Her face is literally covered with blood. She cannot it's fucking see off. out her fucking eyes. She's barely able to walk. She fucking runs to her sister's house, which is 200 yards <gasps> away, in the fucking dark with blood, like, literally gushing out of her fucking face. Like, her eyes are literally covered. I actually have had, like, I was in a car accident and had a severe head wound where blood was literally gushing down my face. It's fucked up. <laughs> like, really? you cannot see. Because blood is, like, really opaque. Like, yeah. it's not like you're in the shower or something. 
I could not see and I had to like wipe the blood away and even Ew. wiping away, sorry, <laughs> even wiping it away. It's like, you cannot see cause it stings and it's like awful. So I can't even imagine hers is like a thousand times worse than mine was even, but it's fucking like, it's awful. So she runs to her sister's house and no one's home. Oh God. So then she has to go to her sister's next door neighbor house. And luckily they were home. The neighbor like takes a gun out and fires a shot into the sky to alert the other neighbors. (laughs) This is like the most Texas thing ever. Uh, And it kind of works. Everyone's like such high alert that it's like, I don't know if they had set up some kind of alarm system or what, but like, uh, so she's driven to the hospital and she's immediately put under and taken into surgery, obviously. Now, she does survive, wow. by the way. Now, the interesting thing about this murder is, like, it's the first one where police were able to, like, get there right when it happened. The other ones were, like, the next morning or the next right. day. So you'd think that it would go a little bit better, and they do get more evidence. But once again, the scene is bombarded with over 30 police officers just mm. traipsing around this crime scene. Uh, So it's pretty much contaminated once again. One officer who was on the scene had this to say, we tried to secure the crime scene and we were in and out of there all night. We were running around trying to find leads and gather what evidence we could. We tried to interview some people and question some suspects. We went to other people's homes in the area to see if they had heard anything. Uh, But you, you know, yell at people to identify yourself before they get too close, because if you identify yourself or you might get shot. So people are just still walking up to the house like, what's going on? (laughs) I heard I heard the Phantom Killer might come. (laughs) Like, it's like it's like one of those towns where I think everyone's just in everyone's business, too. So it's just like impossible to like get shit done. And it sounds like the cop, one of the cops is probably like, oh, like. Well, come on in. Come on yeah, in. Yeah, like house. it's all these other cops. Like, what's going on? Like, because they had all these t- cops from like other areas in town because of what was going on. It's so disorganized. Yeah, it's really disorganized. So, I did mention that they were able to get some physical evidence finally, uh, despite all of this mess. Um, one was a footprint that they were able to pull up, and they would they were able to send that in for analysis. Another thing they found was a red metal flashlight that was by the bush, by the window that had been shattered. Um, they also re- recovered some twenty two caliber uh, bullets, which was a different weapon than was used in the other two crimes, um, the other crimes. But it was a very common weapon. Like literally one thing I read said, probably everyone in Texas has that rifle. Like that's how common it was back mm-hmm. then. Um, but it didn't really like, it doesn't necessarily mean, it didn't necessarily mean it wasn't the same person. It was just a different weapon. For the first time um, in these killings, they were able to use like tracking dogs to kind of see if there were any trails where the guy ran off or whatever. They didn't have any like scent for that dogs to go off of though. Like, do you know what I mean? Like how they smell the shirt or something. Yeah. They had nothing for the dogs to look for. So it was kind of a huge uh, bust. Um, but they, they were able to get more stuff this time. Um, they also found some footprints in the muddy front yard. Um, just, you know, random stuff like that. Nothing super fucking great, but a little bit more. So the next morning, Saturday, May 4th, the Texarkana Gazette runs with the headline, Murder Rock City Again, Farmer Slain, Wife Wounded, Assassin's Bullet Kills Virgil Starks. Uh, that next day, Saturday, May 4th, um, the flashlight is sent uh, to the FBI headquarters in Washington for fingerprint work, including like on the flashlight and the batteries. 
Uh, Catherine is able to uh, talk to the police at that point, but she has no description of the killer. Like it, she, he, she was shot from outside. Like she never saw him face to face just when he got through the window. But by that point she had already been shot, obviously. Um, local stores are like checking the stock list to see if they had sold that flashlight. Um, one shopkeeper does say that he did have that particular, that particular, uh, flashlight, which was kind of a rare model, but he couldn't remember who he sold it to or have a description of the person. So it's kind of frustrating that they have more evidence, but like it doesn't really lead anything. Like even the, the paper, like, shows that flashlight like they put this like rare i guess back then to have a color photo was really rare but they like spent all this money to have a full color photo of this flashlight put on the front page of the newspaper wow um so the flashlight evidence is returned from the fbi and is found to be entirely clean of prints inside and out which suggests that the killer knew enough to kind of clean it up at some point of fingerprints or he had gloves on. Uh, so th- there's literally nothing uh, on the, on that flashlight. Everything, everything in the town is at high gear now. Um, people are just even more in a frenzy. Newspapers are getting a little more tabloidy, like headlines like sex maniac hunted and murders, even though there was only really one sort of sexual assault on the first victim. That was just uh, the two that survived. They're also like, that newspaper starts interviewing this guy, Dr. Anthony LaPella, and he's like an early proponent of profiling. So they even bring this guy in to be like their like person they interview all the time to talk to about this killer. Um, and he gives like a profile that I find to be uh, pretty generic. It's like one of those profiles where you're like, oh, it's a white guy in his 30s. Okay. He has problems. Like, it's like such a basic, it's just interesting because they had never done that before. It's right. like a really early profiler, but it's very basic. And all of us who are like true crime obsessed would probably be better <laughs> than this guy right. was. Um, but it's like, that's how serious the newspapers are like diving into this kind of psychological profile. Because serial killers were still kind of a un, untapped, like, do you know what I mean? Like well, people didn't know it. They literally didn't come up with the term until the 70s. Right. So yeah, it's definitely like this early sort of example of the media being like, oh, wait, this is like different. Um, so, I mean, he he thinks that the criminal is the same guy in all the attacks, but come on. I mean, that seems pretty obvious and that the man is dangerous. Like, I mean, it's pretty Obviously it's he's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, he has some kind of problem. Yes, so it's not the best. It's no like John Douglas. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, so people now are starting to draw their own conclusions, and they want they think that they know who the killer is. Like every single person in the town has their own suspicions of who the killer is. Yeah, it's whoever they hate. Yeah, whoever they hate, basically. Um, so yeah, they're all coming up with their own things. It's just getting like. Messy, messy, messy. The reward is now up to ten thousand dollars, which is like wow. I think seventy six thousand dollars or something like that. It's like a lot of money at this point, and still no information is coming in. The tension in the area is at like a fucking tipping point. Now people are patrolling the streets at night, well, like you, gangs not, of people. Well, like, you can't even be safe in your own home anymore. Like the people, right? I mean, now they're now this killer's doing home invasions. Yes. That's exactly right. Like people thought they were safe in their house because all the crimes so far had been outside. And now it's like 
no one knows where they're safe. And he did it the day before they thought he would do it. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like fucking with them, I guess, a little bit. Uh, So this teen at the time told the newspaper, if you wanted to go to someone's house after dark, you had to call them first and let them know you were coming. The big wonder for everyone back then was whether the killings were being done by someone who lived among us. So yeah, it's pretty fucked up. Now, May 19th, rumors are being spread again because many people believe that the Slayer had been caught once again and that they were keeping him in the um, Bowie County jail surrounded by Texas Rangers with submachine guns to like keep the the people out from like, I don't know, like hanging them. <laughs> like it's like this mob is going to come to the jail and be like, give us him. Like it's right. like, it's like old West kind of shit. Like, yeah. and so the police have to come out again and be like, we don't have him. Like there's no killer here. We would, we would fucking tell you that we had him. But people just like, don't believe the police don't have this killer. And they think he's protecting, they're protecting the killer for some reason, which is insane. And there's zero evidence that they did that at all. They're basically now waiting for the next three-week period to come around, right? But nothing happens. Now, the story at that point has gone national, um, and they're kind of hyping whatever, like this as an early version of a serial killer. But like you said, that term hasn't really uh, existed yet. Um, Life magazine publishes an article on the case titled Texarkana Terror. The byline of that is, Southern City is panicked by killer who shoots according to schedule. So this is becoming like a national uh, news story now. Um, And it really hypes up the terror of this town, like saying it's gripped by terror, terrified housewives, like all talking about the shotguns and like people's houses. So I'm sure people reading this were like, what the fuck is going on in Texarkana? Like, it just seems crazy. Um, The article also contains an image of a local woman standing next to a homemade booby trap. She uh, basically has a blanket nailed over a glass door with a table teetering on an ashtray that will fall open if the door is open, spilling nails onto tin trays and waking them up. And they have a rifle by their bed. If the door if the door opens, pots then will smash vases onto the floor. So they're doing these like it's like a Rube Goldberg. Yeah, it's like a Rube Goldberg. Like or that game Mousetrap. Did you ever play that game? Of course, I played Mousetrap. <laughs> Here's two things that would happen if I set up a booby trap ever. Number one, I would get caught in the booby trap and get very injured oh, by accident. Absolutely. Number two, the killer would break into the house and the booby trap would not work. <laughs> I mean, it's so, it's, I don't want to say funny because these people are terrified, right. but it is kind of like, look, you're terrified you do these things that are just insane. Right. And you're, you're absolutely right. There's no way I would not be setting there's those off some all ha- There sounds like her booby trap had too many steps to it. Well, it was all about waking them up. Right, like it wasn't about right. hurting him. <laughs> it wasn't like home. It wasn't like Home Alone, right? Where they're like setting now. That's things. that's a booby trap role model. Yeah, but they didn't have Home Alone. They right. were just coming up with this shit on their own. Uh, so the summer passes and there's no more attacks. They basically ended as suddenly as they had started. That really? was it. Nothing else happened ever again. Now, numerous suspects were obviously interviewed during this case, uh, and you can read about. There's like a ton of suspects you can read about. I'm just going to go into two of them. Um, because they're the ones who kind of come up the most. Uh, One of them I don't think is the guy, but it's sort of an interesting case. And then the other one that's sort of the main suspect is a person named Yule Swinney. An Arkansas state police officer named Max Tackett, at the time uh, this was happening, he's kind of like, 
poking around uh, these stolen car logs that they keep in the police station, like on an like a, a non busy night, I guess. And he starts noticing something that on every night of the murders, uh, a car, a previously stolen car, had been found abandoned. Oh. So he starts like kind of thinking that there's some car thief that might be connected to the murders. So what he does is he kind of starts monitoring car thefts. And one night he's like patrolling around a neighborhood and he finds a car in a parking lot that had been reported stolen. So he decides to kind of wait around and see who goes into this car. So while he's taking it out, a 21-year-old woman named Peggy Swinney comes to the car. He basically, she basically gets taken in and arrested right away. She says to them that she had just gotten married in Shreveport, Louisiana, and that her husband was currently in Atlanta, uh, Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. Uh, the police chief in Atlanta tells this officer, Max Tackett, that a man is trying to sell a stolen car to one of his, uh, someone who lives in his area. Now, at that point, Max goes to this person um, and tries to like get him to identify who the person was who sold his car. He kind of can't do it. Um, so what he does is he walks around these areas with this guy who tried to buy the stolen car from, from Ewell. I mean, basically, it's Ewell, uh, but they don't know yet. Um, and Yule sees them and recognizes the guy he tried to sell a stolen car with a cop. And then that they kind of the plan kind of like works because then he tries to escape. Like, right. He fucking like hauls ass out of the area where he was like whatever meeting someone or whatever doing something suspicious. Um, so once uh, Max Tackett sees this guy running, he knows that that's who it is, uh, and he catches him on a spire escape. So it is Yule Swinney, the husband of Peggy. Um, his wife Peggy initially doesn't say anything, but then she goes on to confess in great detail that her husband is the phantom killer, and she knows for a fact that he killed Betty Jo and Paul Martin. Whoa. Now, at that period, and I don't know if it's still this way, she can't be forced to testify against her husband, right? So, I mean, I guess she could do it if she wants to, but she can also not testify him, and she uh, is basically considered an unreliable witness. She kind of changes her story a lot and stuff like that. Um, Yule is not arrested for the murder because they only have circumstantial evidence. Um, and he is eventually sent to prison for car theft. But here's some of like the kind of evidence that they have against him. It's all circumstantial, but some of it's very interesting. Now, when uh, Max Tackett catches uh, Yule in Atlanta on the fire escape, he says to him, please don't shoot me. And Max says, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars. And the guy, and Yule says to him, Mr., don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. Now, when they're driving back in the police car to the police station from Atlanta, uh, the guy, he says at some point, Mr. Johnson, what do you think they'll do to me for this? Will they give me the chair? And he says, you won't get much, probably five or 10 years. They don't give the electric chair for stealing cars. And Ewell says to him, Mr. Johnson, you got me for more than stealing cars. So he kind of keeps saying these sort of suspicious things. And I have no idea why he keeps doing this. Um, When Peggy is told that her husband is, they're suspecting her husband of these murders, she exclaims, how did they find out? There are some other things like... Like Peggy's family all believe that he is the phantom. Police find a khaki work shirt in his room that has a laundry mark on it that says Stark in a black light. Like they they can barely see this writing. So obviously that's one of the victim's names. Did he steal this shirt? 
Um, the victim's name was Starks, not Stark, but they they were kind of like, oh, maybe the S <laughs> like went off. And then the wife, his wife can't sort of say for sure if it was his uh, shirt or not. He also owned a 32 caliber uh, Colt automatic rifle uh, weapon that he had lost in a craps game. Um, it's just like all these kind of things that kind of connect him to the crime. But obviously there's a lot of things that sort of, you know, eliminate him as a suspect. Like she does recant her confession eventually. She says that it was coerced and like she didn't, she was under questioning for hours, like one of those situations. Right. Um, there's no fingerprint evidence that he, you know, that kind of thing. So they basically just don't know, but he is uh, pretty much considered probably the person who did it by um, the two main detectives and the people who wrote a book. I'll give you the book at the end. Um, let me just get to this other guy who was sort of a main suspect for a bit. On November 5th, 1948, an 18-year-old freshman at University of Arkansas named Henry Booker Duty Tennyson, sorry, that's like such a 50s nickname, <laughs> was wait, found... Wait, his, his nickname was Duty? Yeah. <laughs> D O O D I. No, I know, but still, that is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, He's found dead at his home in Arkansas. uh, And he basically had bought cyanide that he said he was going to use for rat poison and killed himself that way, which is like really unusual, I think. Uh, Anyways, there's this whole rigmarole thing. I like wrote it down, but then I was like, I can't even fucking understand this. He did all this, like almost like a scavenger hunt for the police, like look for this. Then they had to go through a tube and find this thing that took them to the next step. Like he had put together this whole scavenger hunt for the police to basically uh, find his suicide note. So he would be an insult, incel. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Seriously. Uh, So he leads them on the scavenger hunt to find his suicide note. And when they find the note, here's what the note says. To whom it may concern, uh, he basically starts the letter off, you know, telling his family he loved them and that they didn't do anything wrong. He killed himself. You know, it wasn't their fault, that kind of thing. And thanking them for all the trouble they went through with him and his life. Then he says, why did I take my own life? Well, when you commit two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night and killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Mrs. Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when my mother was out or asleep, but no one saw me do it. For the guns, I disassembled them and discarded them in different places. When I am found, which has already been done, please give this typewriter to Craig, his older brother, and tell him I hope that his child is a boy. Uh, so he goes on to have these other like scavenger hunts um, and tells other instructions about what to do. Um, and then he signs it off. Now, so he's basically confessing in this suicide note. But off, on this scavenger hunt, they find other notes. They find um, copies. Like he had done this several different ways, like different copies or trying out different words. Like in his suicide note, he had several different versions. He also left other ones that contradict the confession note. So it's like this scavenger hunt for these other notes to kind of disprove the first note. I don't know what he was doing. Um, One of the notes reads, please disregard all other messages which I have written. They are only thoughts which I was thinking about as possible reasons for taking my own life. So he's doing this like wild, weird, like ignore all previous notes that I've sent you on a scavenger hunt. This is a very elaborate... Dude, when I was reading it, I had to read it 50 times because I was like, what is he doing? I can't... And because I was like, I needed to have a comprehension of it, like a deep comprehension to it to explain it. Yeah. But I was like, I can't, I can't figure it out. So I don't want to say it because I'm going to just be jumbled. But also why? 
I have no idea. I mean, obviously he's suffering from something. This I, is I have so no much idea. effort. Yeah, it's a lot of effort. Uh, I mean, maybe he was using it to process what he wanted to do and was trying to like procrastinate in maybe, a weird way. Maybe we'll just never know. Yeah. So there's no evidence at all that what he says is true. In fact, one of his friends comes forward when he hears that he's a suspect and says, I was with him the night of, uh, I think it might've been the Starks murder. Like yeah. I was with him all that night. There's no way he did that. Uh, and there's no reason this person would lie. Like, right. uh, he also said that, um, that, uh, duty, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, he, knew Betty Jo. Like they he played trombone in a band with her. I don't know if it was the one she played the night she died. Um so the whole thing just seems uh kind of suspect. Now the book I mentioned is called um it came out in 2014. It's called The Phantom Killer Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Serial Murders by Dr. James Presley. And he he basically lays out his um theory that uh Hugh, I'm sorry, what is his name? Huel. Huel is the killer. Like he Everyone, believes yeah, it's him. Yeah, and, and also, like I said, said, the two lead investigators also believe that it was him. But there's just no evidence. Um, there's just no evidence. Like Right. Um, and then there's a lot more, I, like I said, you can read about um, different suspects. I mean, it's just fun to read, I guess, but they're definitely not the person who did it. Um, so, yeah, that case is still unsolved. It's still a cold case. Um, and I don't know if it will ever be solved. Every Halloween, every October since 2003 in Texarkana, they play the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown. It's like a tradition now Whoa. that people play it. I guess they have this big outdoor um, movies in the park type deal. It's like, hey, remember that horrible thing that happened <laughs> yeah. in our town? That, so, would, that would be like in my hometown if they did the Zodiac movie right. every but year. But it's probably really fucking scary, right? Like to be in an outdoor setting watching that movie. Yeah. Like... The movie, uh, The Town of Dreaded Sundown, is actually written and directed by a man named Charles B. Pierce, who is from Texarkana. So he created this movie basically um, based on his experience growing up there. Like, it was definitely something that everyone who lived there hears about their whole life. Right. Um, now, the movie is, like, you haven't seen it, I haven't seen it, but it's definitely, like, it seems to be, like, a low-budget Maybe not the best horror movie, but it definitely has obtained like a cult status. Yeah. It's sort of billed as being based on true events, but it's definitely not the story of what happened. Right. It's definitely all sort of um, vaguely familiar. But then there's, of course, there's like a huge uh, confrontation with the killer at the end. Right. Um, and then this sort of like funny ending is that in the movie, they play the movie. What? It's like a movie within a movie. Like in the movie, there's a movie based on the crimes that happened and people in the town go see it, which is like what happens in the 2000s, basically. And the end of the movie, it's like you see the foot of the killer is going to the screening of oh the movie. Like, so it sounds definitely like a cheesy kind of horror, which I like sometimes. Yeah. Um, now, people were upset about this movie in the town and some of the... Um, police department and like local officials wanted to sue uh, the director. And the reason they wanted to sue the director was because of the film's tagline. Uh, the tagline is 
basically uh, claims that the man who killed five people still lurks the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas. (laughs) So the police were like, hey, this is going to cause a panic because... (laughs) You're basically saying the killer is still around. Well, us. technically, well, we don't. We don't know. We don't know. No one knows. He is he wrong? Yeah, is he wrong? is he wrong? So, I mean, the movie does kind of definitely hint at the Betty Joe murder, like it's like the saxophone player and the farmhouse murder for right. sure. So they kind of stick to the those two in the movie. Um, and then, as I said, there's like this huge fight at the end between police and the killer where he manages to escape somehow, which obviously never happened, as I mentioned. Uh, Yeah. So, and then I I think I told you earlier, there was like some sequel or something. I'm not quite sure. I saw it described as a meta sequel. (laughs) I have no idea what that that means at all. Um, But yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. I, it could even be almost the same thing, but they just redid it in the 2000s at some point. Did they reference the first movie in that? I think it's the same title. It's like the same title, but maybe it's slightly different. Oh, look, I, I, look, I haven't seen either of them. Yeah. So uh, that one came out in 2014, so it's not too old. And it has some like weird actors in it. It has uh, Gary Cole oh. and uh, Edward Herman. And Ed Lautner. I need to look this movie up. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I've seen it or not. Yeah. So, yeah. I think think it's a Blum Blum house, maybe. What is it called? Jason Blum, right? I know Jason Blum. Or Blum. He directed, or he produced it. It's called The the Town That Dreaded Sundown. It's the the exact same title. Okay. Well, I've never seen it. Uh, So, yeah. You can go check that out if you want. It didn't do very well. Got $120,000 at the box (laughs) office. I mean, sometimes horror movies make a lot, though, in DVD Well, sounds, I'm right? sure the Blum House people are not hurting for money these I think, days. I think, I think they're I doing think fine. Uh, so, yeah, that's that, that's that case. That's wow. It. That's fucking scary. It's crazy that he was never caught. I mean, it is really... That story is very horror movie ready. Oh, my God. It's totally. terrifying. Like, the townspeople, all, like, this vigilante, like... Well, I knew about his mask, like his baghead mask. Is that like a? See, I didn't know about that. Until I knew I did about this. I knew about the mask. Well, um, it's always in the posters. Like they yeah. have that mask on. Um, but yeah, with the eyes cut out, it's creepy looking. It's kind of like what is that show, Watchmen? There's like a scary part, and they have the mask like that. Oh, like there's some mask element to it. I don't even know who the Watchmen are. I don't either. When I was watching it, I was like, "What the fuck is going on?" I don't like any. <laughs> I don't like any comic book stuff Can I except just tell Batman. You, it has a Batman esque element to it, really, because it's not superheroes. It's just people. Uh, it's one of those things where I was like, I don't know what's going on because I don't know the comic book at all. Right. But it was interesting and scary. Like, it's scary. Like, I yeah. was fucking scared. Um, and the Regina King is oh, in I it. love her. She's re- she's like the lead. Wow. Uh, so Maybe I'll check it out then. I think you should check it out. But do I have to know anything about Watchmen? I don't know anything about it. And you liked it. I, I definitely felt confused sometimes, but there's enough of like a storyline happening where I felt like I could still be into it because there's like a personal storyline. Yeah. Uh, I have to finish watching the second episode. There's only two episodes. Look, I'm telling you, I don't like comic book movies. I don't know anything about Watchmen, but there was an element that I'm compelled. It was compelling to me, this personal relationship, which is the main storyline of the first episode. But there's definitely things I'm like, who's that? I don't fucking know. Right. But yeah, I don't know. I would check it out if you're bored. Um, 
it couldn't hurt. Okay. And she's really good. I love her. Um, so yeah, that's that. Great. That um, was awesome. And that's the end of happy our Halloween. Halloween. Yeah, happy Halloween. Yeah. And you go, should go to our Facebook and post your costumes. Yeah, somebody start a thread on Facebook and just post all your costumes yeah. in, into one thread. Especially all your midsummer. <laughs> You know what? <laughs> Look, it's a very thing thing that's great about the midsummer costume as a concept just as a Halloween costume is you look cute but you're also scary cuz you're from a horror movie. Well, also it looks like a dress you could just wear a lot. It after looks the like a costume that's easily made but it looks good. It does look good, I will say, but I just think it's funny how everyone's like acting like they're the only one who thought of it. I think it's just <laughs> I think it's just the perfect. It's like, oh, it's such a no-brainer Halloween costume because everyone can find some kind of flower thing right. around and ev- well, have yeah. you seen Midsummer yet? No. Desi, you have to see it. <laughs> I know. I still haven't seen Hereditary. What? I know. Cuz if they're not on streaming, I'm not going to see it. <laughs> Midsummer is on Amazon. Is it, it- is it Prime? I'm sure, no, but I'm sure Hereditary is available on Amazon Prime. Oh, I don't think I saw Just it. Just rent it for $3, okay. Desi. <laughs> I'm so irritated you haven't seen Hereditary yet. That's like, I'm so mad I'm going to end the show early. Okay, okay bye. bye.